Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Now, this is not my primary text, of course. I just want to supplement this with Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read through this kind of, kind of quick and maybe commentate on this a little bit, expound a little bit. But Ephesians chapter 4 is one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture that you could read in regards to a picture of the people of God and the body of Christ. It is a beautiful picture. The things that Paul writes about in the first, the first chapter of Ephesians is a really, really a lot to, to, try, to try to synthesize and understand in your own heart and your mind. And when you read Ephesians chapter 4, it's a beautiful picture of the people of God, the body of Christ, and what the ultimate goal of all of us should be. So we have not read, we have not read this scripture just yet. We've only read Romans 12 the past two weeks. So I just want to, a little, a little fast, read through Ephesians 4 and let that be fresh on our brain when we go to Romans chapter 12. So, Paul is in prison when he's reading, when he's writing this, and it says in verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. He's impressing upon them to walk in the calling that you've been called. Don't sit on the sidelines. And here is the position. Here's the posture. Here is the attitude and spirit by which you walk in your calling, much, what, much like what we described last week. How do you do it? With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. How many of you know you can apply this scripture directly to, let's say, marriage relationship? Unless you bear with one another and forgive one another, you're going to have a divorce in the first week of marriage. There's a lot of putting up with one another, isn't there? There's a lot of forbearance. There's a lot of mercy and grace that has to be poured out onto your spouse. And, and, and there's a lot of growth and maturity that has to take place in marriage. So just think about that same principle applied to the functioning relationships and, 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 and the, re, the relationships we have and interactions we have as members of Christ. Listen, we're going to do things that rub each other the wrong way. We have all kinds of different personalities and propensities and inclinations and little quirks that if we're not forbearing with one another, you're going to get on each other's nerves real quick. And you're not going to be very merciful. But he's saying with lowliness of mind, not thinking others are better than yourself. And with gentleness, not being this abrasive thing, not, not being this rough and gruff individual, but with gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. All of that has to be rooted in love because love does in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does all those things in, in 1 Corinthians 13. It bears, believes, it hopes, and endures all things. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring, working to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. I will tell you, in heaven there is no Baptist. There is no assembly of God. There is no Methodist. There is no other denomination in heaven. It's all blood-bought Christians. Blood-bought Christians. Now, there may be Baptists and Episcopalians and assembly of God and Pentecostals, all those in parentheses, in hell. But, but in heaven, there's no differentiation when God sees you, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking for your denominational affiliation. He's looking for the one Lord, Jesus Christ. He's looking for the one spirit, the one baptism which you've been baptized into. The Lord cares about that and that alone. Now, I understand Given just the difference in the way we interpret things in the scriptures, there are natural differences in groups and denominations form. I understand that. That is not God's per first preference. But if you want to apply this to the local church, to this local body, God's intention is that we would have a spirit of unity and a bond of peace all rooted in love. And this is, this is how it, it occurs. Seven, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's Gift. I want you to notice, if you read Ephesians 4, if you read 1 Corinthians 12, if you read uh, or 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, anytime you see gift, it's always in tandem with grace. Gift and grace are never separated, ever. 
Gift and grace are never separated. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, you know what the word grace is? It's charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. It is the root word to gifts, which is charismata. They're inextricably linked. You cannot have one without the other. So when you read Ephesians 4 or Romans 12, make note of that. When you see grace and gifts, they're always linked together. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. When Jesus defeated all the powers of hell, of death, and of the grave, when he rose the third day and defeated everything, defeated sin, and made us more than conquerors, he, as the the captain of our salvation, as the chief commander of the armies of God, he has made, he has made the forces of evil a spoil to the people of God. And as he defeated all of the powers of evil and he ascended on high, he gave us gifts as the spoil, if you will. When Jesus, when he, when he, he paraded the enemy naked before in the streets being the conquering army, he has now given us the spoils of war, if you will, by conquering the devil, the grave and death upon the cross. And so when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. He's even yet right now interceding at the right hand of the Father. And he himself gave some to be. Now right here he's going to talk about not gifts given to individuals, but men as gifts to the church. Okay, so he's going to talk about the gift that he has given by giving particular individuals, by giving men to the church. Unlike Romans 12 where he talks about aspects of prophecy, mercy, uh, giving, ministry, those aspects. So he says, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So when you have this fivefold ministry, or fourfold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, when you have these men who are gifts to the church, that no one man is more important than the other, and no one, of, no one of these men is more important than any other member of the body of Christ who may be a layperson because it's by God's grace that he's given these gifts to the people of God. He's saying all these individuals, these fivefold ministry, when they are functioning properly, their function is to equip the saints For what purpose? For the work of ministry. So it's not just the man behind the pulpit who's supposed to be engaged in ministry. It's every single person. And the man behind the pulpit or the man leading the people of God, his task is to equip the people of God so that they can now go out and be armed with the necessary means to do the work of ministry. All of us are called to the work of ministry, which simply means service, to serve in some capacity. Because all of us have something the Lord has, has done in us, given us a gift, placed us as members of the body of Christ. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And here, here is the ultimate goal right here, verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So these five men, this fivefold ministry is pointing to Jesus. And all of the members who are doing the work of ministry are pointing to Jesus. And everybody's pointing to Jesus and telling everybody to look unto Jesus. He's our standard. He's the measure. He's the fullness of all things. And he is who we are desiring. As a matter of fact, in Philippians, it tells us that he himself is our prize. It's all about Jesus, and he is the ultimate standard and measure of spirituality in your life. You want to know how spiritual you are? Tell me how Christ-like you are. It's Christ-likeness which is the measure of spirituality, not the possession of gifts, because gifts are by God's grace and are not necessarily dependent upon maturity. God can use a one-day-old Christian, he can use them to prophesy. Because it's by his grace. And it's not by any kind of merited favor. It's unmerited favor. So, verse 14, last three verses. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men 
and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And so when the leadership is doing their job and equipping the people and they're growing in knowledge of Jesus Christ, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, false teachers cannot, and the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of lies from hell cannot knock anybody out. That, that we will not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but we'll know the true Jesus, the true doctrines of the Word of God, and we're grounded in Him, grounded in the truth. 15, but speaking the truth in love, how many of you know you can be right in what you're saying, but wrong in the way you're doing it? You can be, I can be right in everything I say, but have hate in my heart, and it makes me wrong. Um, I, I've, seen, I've seen people, some preachers come out to Lamar when I was in school, preach fire and brimstone and preach and preach to these people and yell, pe- yell at people. And they didn't have any love for the, the college students they were trying to preach to. They had no love. They, they, took great, they took great, great pleasure in telling people they were going to hell. That's how it felt. But you speak the truth in love. So, so tr- because you love people, you're going to give them the truth. And the way by which you give truth is with the spirit of love. They're always together. From whom? 16. This kind of brings it back to the whole subject matter. From whom the whole body, that's you and I, all of us, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Every single one of us supplies and brings something to the body that another person does not bring. What every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, and here it is, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. If you will grow individually and if you will grow corporately, Ephesians 4 has to take root in your life. It has to be reality in your life and the life of this church. We're, we're, we're edified on the basis of love. We do it with lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, forbearing one with another, understanding that we have a place in the body of Christ, allowing leaders to speak into our lives, equipping us for ministry so that we're not, we're not um, knocked off course by every wind of doctrine, and that ultimately we would grow up into the head, which is Jesus Christ, because all of us are supplying our portion of Christ one to another, and we're edifying ourselves in love. Isn't that a beautiful picture? of what a church must be, a beautiful picture. And I can, I'm just going to read this for the next 30, 40, 50 years of my life and still try to grasp the depth of this, the reality of this, and pursue this with all my life. Because that's what I want to see, and that is the Lord's will to see in our lives. So with that, turn to Romans 12. Turns to Romans 12, and we're going to expound upon the Scripture that we've been looking at for the past two weeks. Romans 12, verse 3. The title of the message here this afternoon, it's a call call to action. It is this, so let us use them. So let us use them. 12 and 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, As an apostle, called by the grace of God, Paul is saying, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Why? As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. That's the title of the message here today. Let us use them. And then he goes into the various gifts here. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching... He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. 
Now, before I, I expound and explain these, these several gifts, I, I want to, to bring our attention to, to this, to the humbling and sobering nature of these gifts. I, I, want, I want us to be grounded, okay? I want us to be grounded in this truth of the humbling and sobering aspect of the gifts, the nature of these gifts, okay? So before we do go into each individual gift and expound upon them, I want to make this real to us. Number one, in respect to the humbling and sobering nature of gifts, because all of us have a propensity to become prideful, don't we? All of us have a propensity, a natural inclination because of our flesh to puff ourselves up, to pat ourselves on the back, to seek attention, to seek to be in the limelight. That's a continual and perpetual temptation of all of us is, is to want to be put in the forefront and get attention and for people to see us. And so we have to continually be humble and lowly and be reminded of this. So number one, be reminded that it's by God's grace that we are what we are and possess what we possess, obviously. Romans 12, 6, what we just read, it says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. You have the gifts, whatever gift you may have, what, what, whatever gift the, the radio preacher who's been heavily blessed of God, whatever they have, it's purely by the sovereign grace of God. And for some of us, that's a great relief because for some of us, we tend to compare our ministry, our gifts, to the gifts of other people. And if you don't realize, it's not because you've done anything to merit it, you've done anything to work for it, it's purely by God's grace and his sovereign will that he has given people particular gifts or, or made them a particular member in the body to be used in a particular way. And it has nothing to do with merit or earning it. It's by God's grace. He's saying because of the grace, of the gifts giving according to grace. How many of you know you're saved by grace? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And why has God given things by grace through faith? The only thing that we bring to the table is by faith. It's through faith. He ends it like this, not of works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. And so, the humbling nature of gifts is this. You have nothing to boast in. God uses you to speak to millions of people, or he uses you to, 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 to teach a Sunday school class, or play the piano, or sing a song, or write, whatever it may be. You have nothing to boast in. Absolutely nothing. And the same way in which you were saved by grace, it's the same way in which he gives you these gifts and makes you a member of the body of Christ. It is purely so that you can boast in nothing. If it was based upon your own merit and work, you could boast. I did this. But the Lord, he is jealous for his own glory. The Lord is jealous for his own glory. God is for God first and foremost. And no man shall be glorified above the name which is above every other name, which is Jesus Christ. He is Lord and I am not. And everything from my life, it must point to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It must point to his supremacy, to his preeminence. It must point to his glory. And if I can do anything in my own power and strength and by my own work, then I can boast and I am pulling glory away from the Lord. And he will share his glory with no one. And so it's very humbling when you realize, God, it's not because I'm anything special that you're using me. It's purely because you are good of your unmerited favor. I cannot boast in anything I've done because you are the one who's done it. Is there personal responsibility on my part? Absolutely. To cultivate what he's given me, to be a steward of what he's given me, to mature and to grow and to, to do those things as far as personal responsibility, yes. But all the glory at the end of the day, it still goes all to the Lord. All to the Lord. It goes all to him. There is nothing more humbling to me than grace. Listen, it's a, it's a very humbling thing to think about judgment, to think about the weight of sin, to think about the reality of hell. It's a very humbling thing to think of God's great holiness 
and his eternal nature to think of how big he is and how small I am. That is humbling. I mean, when you, when you read the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, just how he realizes I'm unclean in the presence of a holy and righteous God who's, who's high and lifted up, and I am nothing. That's humbling. But I will tell you this. There's nothing more humbling except when the child of God can get so close to the Lord, realizing how carnal and unclean they were, and God still be gracious and loving to them and give them mercy and grace. I cannot tell you what's more humbling than when a sinner is offered a free gift of salvation. When I think about the grace of God, not as a license to sin, not as something that covers my sin, but as something that gives me power to overcome my sin because it humbles me. It makes me even more gracious and thankful to God's saving power and for the cross and for his blood. It humbles me all the more. It should not make me prideful. It should not make me run to sin or, and, 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 and give myself to things of the world. It should cause me to be all the more thankful and gracious to a loving God who saved a wretch like me. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Not even that ancient, I love, and I think it's 1 Peter chapter 1 or 2, where, where Peter talks about this grace we have experienced, and he says even angels long to look into it. Do you know that you have experienced something more glorious than all the angels who saw from the very beginning all of creation? They're in the very presence of God, they see the Lord. They're in his presence. They've seen his creation. They've seen him do everything. They know who he is, what he is. They're in his very presence. And the angels cannot even say they've experienced something you've experienced. Because an angel is not a redeemed being. And Lucifer and his, his fallen demons have not been redeemed and can't be redeemed. But for us to be redeemed or to, to be a fallen creature and then have the free offer of grace and salvation and the ability to be redeemed, oh my goodness, even the angels would love to experience that. Aside from all the glorious things they've experienced in creation and seeing God, they have not experienced something as great as the experience of grace, this unmerited favor. It's like this. Let me, let me explain by this analogy. This analogy is not perfect. You can certainly poke holes in it and even make jokes about the nature of this analogy. But let me just try to apply this point with this analogy. So how many of you, when you turned 16, when you turned 16, you got your license, your parents bought your car for you? Raise your hand. Now, this is where the jokes come in. I will note that it's more of the younger generation who are raising their hands. And more of the older generation had to work a little more for what they got. And I understand over time we become more prosperous and things change. I understand. You know, to apply my teenage years to, to somebody else's teenage years who's in their 70s or 80s is not, is not comparing the same thing, apples to apples necessarily. Okay? But some of us, myself included, I was given 1997 Chevrolet Silverado extended cab on my 16th birthday with dual exhaust. All my other friends, including Hunter and Wade, they had a single cab. So I had the extended cab. So when a bunch of us went to go somewhere, who did they go with? We went with me. I had the extended cab. I love that truck. I, I would actually love to, to have it right now. I love that truck. But I hadn't had a job yet. When I turned 16, I got a job at, at Market Basket. Um, I worked really hard. And, and, but when I turned 16, I had no money saved up enough to buy a car. And my parents had the means, the resources. Of course, I, I am a, a model child. There's no reason for them. There's no reason for them not to give me a vehicle. And so, by a pure act of grace, unmerited favor, without me doing any work, pr pr providing any kind of money, they, of their own accord, free free of charge to me, give me a truck. 1997 Silverado. The parent, my parents paid for it, and then they gifted it to me. They paid for my gas. They paid for my insurance. I paid for everything else. But here's the thing. What they ask of me, though, because they still have rights over that truck, they still have rights over me as their child, 
And just because I've got a truck doesn't mean I'm free. No, you use this truck within the parameters in which I've given it. You use it how I tell you to use it, when to use it, how it can be used, how often it can be used, what money can be spent on it. We have say in everything in the life of this truck. Though it's free, a free gift given to you for your usage, we want you to be a good steward of this. Don't go too fast. Don't, don't turn donuts in the parking lot. Don't go mudding. You need to be a good steward of this free grace gift given to you. But we still have full rights. We're even paying the insurance and gas for it. You've done nothing to earn it. You've done nothing to earn it. It's a free gift. We just ask that you honor our wishes. You be a good steward of what we've given to your hand. Because we just simply, here's the reason why. We love you. That's it. We love you. You are our child. We love you. We want to do this to you. We want this to be a blessing to you. So here's the application. How ridiculous would it be for me or whoever that teenager is who's been the beneficiary of a free gift of grace for them, let's say they get a brand new vehicle, latest model, top of the line, everything. It would be absolutely ridiculous for that teenager to be boastful and proud of what they are riding in and what they possess. Because, listen, son, you've done nothing to deserve it. You are a nobody. You have $10 to your name. Don't you go around acting like you're some big, big shot because you got the latest model car or because you got a 97 Silverado with dual exhaust. Doesn't matter. Don't, don't be so proud like you're Mr. Big Shot and act like you got it going on because look at what I'm driving. What was given to you, you didn't work a finger for. You didn't lift a finger for. It was given purely because of the love of your parents by grace. You were gifted this. That's how ridiculous it would be for us to boast in what we've been given. And, and of course, that, that truck would be quickly taken away from that child who's risen up in pride. Right? So while this analogy is, in part, meets the, the need for this analogy, you can poke some holes in it. You understand what I am saying. And again... In regards to the humbling and sobering nature of the gifts, number two, the Spirit sovereignly distributes gifts to each one as He wills. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, which talks about the body of Christ, says this, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. God is sovereign, and plain and simple, here's the answer to why He does what He does. Because He can. Because he is God and I am not. Well, why do they have a ministry that's flourishing? Why does God use them in this area? I don't know, but I know it's just because God can. Because God wants to. Because he sovereignly distributes the gifts individually as he wills. Not as I will, not as I wish, but as he wills. And listen, this alleviates a lot of our worry when we think about the people that God uses. Because it's, again... They're nothing special. It's because of God's grace. Because God is so great. He's so sovereign. And he can do what he wishes to do. Another aspect of the humbling and sobering nature of the gifts is this. That diversity should make us dependent on one another. Which ultimately encourages and results in unity. You see in all three of these scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. There's a huge emphasis on unity. One Lord, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, that we would all have the spirit of unity, the bond of peace. God places great value on unity. And one major way in which he facilitates unity is this way, through diversity. God facilitates unity in this place, in the church universal, by implementing something that is really contradictory to what we would think, by implementing Many diverse parts, diverse gifts, diverse members, a diversity of parts. Why? 
so that every single member cannot stand alone by themselves but must be dependent on somebody else. And so they cannot boast in their individual gift or calling, but it's very humbling when you realize I cannot accomplish anything and I cannot accomplish unity in the body of Christ except that I'm dependent on another part. That it's not, I'm not a one-stop shop for everything. The work of this church, the success of it does not rise and fall on one person. How arrogant how arrogant. Is there a place for the leadership to lead the people? Absolutely. When there's no shepherd, the sheep scatter. I get that. But it's, everything does not fall on one gift. does not rise and fall on one gift. Everything does not rise and fall on one man. It's the whole body, unified, as every joint supplies one to another, that if I'm one big finger, I can't talk to you. If I'm one big foot, I can't eat. If I'm one big uh, um, uh, uh, abs, <laughs> Seth can come up here and show you his abs. I got no biceps to show you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how significant or supposedly insignificant that member of the body may seem. They're all dependent upon one another. And if you don't think so, let your big toe get hurt and your whole body suffers. Uh, about a year ago, I, this is crazy. I sound like an old man saying this. I got gout in my left foot. Anybody had that? Gout is when there's a buildup of uric acid in your blood, which often is, is created by when you eat a lot of red meat. Um, and this uric acid will create little tiny crystals, and they will congregate at a joint, and oftentimes at the joint of your big toe where your big toe meets your foot. And these little crystals will, will congregate at that joint, and it's like tiny little knives, tiny little knives sticking you in your foot. I have never experienced, up to this point, I have never experienced such great pain, throbbing pain. If, if you would have told me, let's amputate your foot, I was like, do it. That's how bad it was. Take it off. I was out, and it was just my little toe. But it affected my whole foot. It affected my whole body. And, and, and you may think your big toe, that's insignificant. Whatever part of the body it may be. Well, you let that part be affected and you realize how much it's needed and how it affects the whole. So the body. This analogy of the body is used in all three of those scriptures. And it's a wonderful analogy in how the body, being many members, is all dependent upon one another. Another analogy would be like this. For anybody who may be familiar with sports, a football team, especially. With the football team, there's all kinds of different personnel. You got big men, small men, fast men, wide men, skinny men. All of them, all of them have a particular assignment for a particular task, for a particular position. You can't put an offensive lineman in the place of a receiver. It's not going to work. And you can't put a receiver on the offense, offensive line. All these different personnel on a football team, on a basketball team, whatever it is, the end goal is to win. And no one of those men can win except all of them are in their right place at the right time doing the right thing in unity one to, to another so they can get more points on the scoreboard than the other team. And if you think the, the big, big old lineman is not important, let him let a big old defensive lineman go through and take the quarterback out. You realize how important he is. And oftentimes you'll see when, a, when a, a running back who's had great success in a particular season, he'll give these lavish gifts to his offensive line because he realizes, I'm nobody unless you block for me. And the quarterback, I'm nobody unless my blind side is, 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 uh, is, is caught by the tackle. I'm, I'm nobody even without the field goal kicker, even without the kicker. Kickers win games too. And so you have all these different people in different capacities and different usages, and they're all dependent upon one another. And here's the thing. Because all of us are dependent upon one another, because we're all diverse, this will always encourage unity. And you can only accomplish this in humility. Because you realize it doesn't rise and fall on me. I have to be dependent upon my fellow brother and sister in the Lord. And this will result in greater unity. Greater unity as we're more and more dependent upon one another. And we celebrate the diversity 
of experience, the diversity of gifts, the diversity of calling in all of our lives. We celebrate that. We're dependent upon one another, and unity is encouraged. And this continuously creates humility and a sober mind, and it's propagated by continuous humility and a sober mind until we all come to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ, who is the head, who is the head. I already know I'm not going to get through all these. I'll go through the first couple, and we'll finish next week. So, today after church, we're going to have two packets to hand out to you. One packet is called Finding Your Place in the Body, Finding Your Place at Grace River Chapel. And what it is, it's just a synopsis. It's a summary of the various ministries of the church that we have up to this point are ministries that we want to have, and it's offering to you a place for you to serve. Some of us, we don't know how to serve or we don't, we don't, we don't, we're afraid to ask to serve, and so this is a wonderful thing to present, and all you have to do is read through this. I want you to pray about it, bring it back next week or by the end of the month, and, and sign your name to it and circle whatever you feel the Lord calling you to do, that you don't want to be on the sidelines and just watching other people do stuff. There is something for you to do. And no, no task is big or small because every member of the body is just as significant as the other member. It's just that we're all diversely fit in the body. And so if you look here at Romans 12, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go over the first. I'm going to do this. I'm going to look at teaching and exhortation. Okay? Teaching and exhortation. I'm going to close with that. I'm a little more long-winded than I intended, and I apologize for that. Preachers have a tendency to do that, don't we? Romans 12, I'm going to try to, try to wrap this up. Look here at verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching... He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I, I will brush over the few before and then go in greater depth with teaching and exhortation and in there. But of course, in 1 Corinthians 12, there are the gifts of the Spirit, the revelatory gifts or the speaking gifts, gifts of healing, miracles, faith, prophecy, tongues, interpretation. We will get to that in the very, very near future. This is a spirit-filled Pentecostal church, and I want us to flow in the gifts of the Spirit. Prophecy, tongues, interpretation, all those things. And it's important that we are well taught by the Word of God and that we are open to that and we're used by that. And um, prophecy here in Romans chapter 12, it can involve either foretelling or forthtelling. We oftentimes, when we think about prophecy, we think about somebody telling the future, which is foretelling. But oftentimes, prophecy involves forthtelling. Forthtelling. Now, it can be foretelling when God enables an individual to bring a word or, or revelation directly from God under the impulse of the Holy Spirit. He gives divine revelation in a moment by the power of the Holy Spirit. He enables you to share information spontaneously by the impulse of the Holy Spirit. That's foretelling. It meets a situation or speaks to a situation. But then there's also foretelling when that means when you proclaim God's will and exhort and encourage God's people. That can also be prophecy. That's foretelling. So you see the prophets in the Old Testament doing foretelling and foretelling. How many times are they telling them, repent, 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 or God's going to judge you? That was foretelling and foretelling. Ministry. This is similar to the gift of helps mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. It means those who serve, simply those who serve. It has a broad application to include every kind of practical help. I'll go into that in greater detail next week. Ministry just simply means in the broadest sense to serve. Find a place, a capacity, a way to serve whatever it may be. So now teaching. Okay, teaching. This is what teaching is. And I hope to bring some clarity to, to the difference between teaching and preaching by, by exposing, expounding on this. Teaching, the ability to interpret, clarify, systemize and explain God's truth. 
What it means to teach is this, that you can clearly and effectively explain the truth of God. That's what it means to teach. There are some people who can understand in their minds, in their hearts, they get it, it's a reality, but it may be a little harder for them to systematically and effectively teach it to somebody else. And that's okay. That's fine. But there may be some people who are especially gifted to teach, where they have this, this ability, by God's grace, to take the Word of God, to, 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 yes, understand it and make it a reality in their own lives, but then to present it to the people of God and make that truth a real reality and to make it real to the people they're explaining it to. That's the gift of teaching. And, and this can be a, a, a continual gift, or you, it may be a momentary gift that God gives you, the, the ability to teach to somebody, to bring clarity to a situation or to a truth that somebody needs to know. And, of course, all of us are teaching at some point. If you have kids, if, if you have uh, employees or whatever, in some capacity we all have experience in teaching. But there is a special gift endowed by the Lord where he enables people to to teach the Word of God. And it's not limited to the pulpit. It's not just the man behind the pulpit. It can be used in multiple settings, in multiple contexts, where God uses you to bring clarity and to effectively explain the Word of God. And listen, this gift is not more spiritual than other gifts. Okay, administration. The person who has the ability to lead and, and to, to uh, budget the finances of a church and has the ability for administration, the administrative side of the church and the work of the church, which is an absolute necessity, no one is more spiritual than the other. No one should be more played down than the other. It's just that God uses people differently, as an example. And so, so some of these speaking gifts, where it may, may be preaching or teaching or prophecy, that sometimes they're lifted up and elevated. But we all understand it's a diversity of gifts and we're used differently. And no one is better than the other. It's just that we have a different place and function in the body of Christ. This is not limited to just men. It includes men and women. If you recall in Acts chapter 18, when uh, Apollos, who is well versed in the scripture, a mighty man, wise, full of the Holy Spirit, it says that um, when Aquila and Priscilla heard him preaching, he only knew the baptism of John. And so when Priscilla and Aquila, that is a man and woman, okay, a man and a woman, when they heard him, they took him aside and taught him in greater depth the things of the baptism of Jesus and gave him greater clarity to the things of God. So it can be men and women. It can, it can be, an, it's just an individual who has the ability to, to synthesize, to, to interpret, to clarify, to give, to give clarity to a truth so that people can understand. It is, tends to be on the side of, it's a lot of information given, uh, the, the fog is, is removed. It, 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 I will say this, though, that a good teacher should always exhort. And here's what exhortation is. Exhortation is a call to action. And so when we'll say something like, um, he's more of a teacher than a preacher, or he's more of a preacher than a teacher, really what we're saying is one of them probably majors more in the gift of teaching while the other probably majors more in the gift of exhortation. Here's what the gift of exhortation is. It's the ability to effectively call others to obey God's truth, used negatively to admonish or correct regarding sin, or positively to encourage, comfort, and strengthen struggling believers. There are some people, after they get done talking to you, you want to give away your car, your house, and your dog for the sake of the gospel. They have a gift to exhort. They really do. To call somebody to action. I, I would say for myself personally, I tend to be on the side of teaching, and all of you know that. I, I just know I have this great desire to understand and help other people understand. But a good teaching ministry, a healthy teaching ministry, should also have a call to action. To exhort people to do what is being presented to you. To do what is being presented to you. So if you look at, let's say, chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, that's a lot of teaching. And then the remainder of, of, of Romans is him exhorting them, put this into practice. So you see the Apostle Paul teaching, exhorting, teaching, exhorting. It's kind of like this. In the church, you don't want fat sheep or skinny sheep. We don't want either. We want healthy sheep. See, only teaching 
only teaching, just, just giving us clarity and, and, and good information, biblical truths, powerful truths, Holy Spirit-driven truths, but only just filling my mind and my heart and my spirit with truths will just lead me to be a fat sheep that will never do anything with it. But only exhortation. The person who says, do more, do this, do this, and you're like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go across the, the world and do this for Christ. The person who can really get you to, to really be active and to go and to do, if it's only that and no doctrinal foundational principles and teaching, you're going to soon burn out or work in a wrong way because there's no depth or understanding. And so, depending on the speaker, not because he's more gifted or less gifted than the other pre pre preacher or speaker, depending on the gift in which they, the Lord really uses them, them in, there's more of an emphasis on teaching or more of an emphasis on exhorting. And, and sometimes we pick out our preachers based upon our personal preference when we really, we're not valuing the diversity of gifts in the body of Christ and that even there's a diversity of how preachers are used, how speakers are used behind the pulpit. And some, depending on what context you're coming from, what tradition, there's a high value placed on preaching it. Preach it, man. Preach it. Preach it. Okay? And there's, there's sometimes there's, there's a, a, a bad light put on teaching. Okay? That's just head stuff. That's just head knowledge. No. If it's, if it's rightly presented, there's going to be teaching accompanied with, now do it. Now do it. There has to be a healthy mix. But there may be an individual who, who is more gifted in one area than the next. I'm not the kind of individual who can make you go sell everything for the gospel. That's just not the way the Lord made me, okay? But I love to teach and to expound and to explain. And, and I'm not any less gifted than the next preacher who you may like because he preaches or exhorts more. It's just that God uses us differently. And you know what? That shouldn't make me insecure as a minister of the gospel. It's just to say, God, you're using me the way you're using me. It's the same thing for you. God, you're using me how you want to use me. And I'm not comparing myself to anybody. And I'm, and I'm not going to exclude other influences in my life who can benefit me because I have these preconceived ideas of what spirituality is, what preaching is, what exhortation, what teaching is. Does that make sense? That brings great clarity, I think, even to me in studying this, that we just need to value. We need to value every single person because that will cause us to humble ourselves, to be dependent upon one another, and ultimately bring us to a place of unity. If the musicians and singers could come. I will finish with this. Go over to Romans 16. I, I want to show you something maybe that, that may be the most boring chapter in the book of Romans. And I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing to you. I'm shamelessly going to read the whole thing to you. Okay? And you may think it's boring, but I want you to see it from a different perspective today. In light of the diversity of people, that there's no big I's and little U's, that all of us are a part of the body of Christ, all of us are as, in, as significant as the other person, all of us have our place, our calling, our gift. This is Paul, the great apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, who, who established biblical truths that are just mind-blowing, who was taken to the third heaven, who, who saw things and experienced things more than any other apostle. Okay? He, he's an amazing man, amazing missionary, amazing preacher of the gospel, greatly used by God. Now I want you to concentrate on all the individuals that he commends in chapter 16. First of all, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sincrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many, and of myself also. Many say that Phoebe was a deacon. Okay? That word servant is the exact same Greek word used for deacon in Acts chapter 6. Many say that she was a deacon. Wow, that's a woman in the first century, and she is a great help to me. Now look at this, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, 
but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved uh, Epenutas, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of a note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampilius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrabus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philogelus and Julia, Neros and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Listen, Paul wrote the two-thirds of the New Testament. This is a small sampling that he did not do it alone. All these people's names who I had a really hard time saying, and many more, they all had a part in laboring for the cause of Christ that was a help to Paul, that edified the body of Christ and propagated the gospel in a pagan world. Of so much note that Paul realized, though I have been given great revelations and I've written the very canon of Scripture, I am dependent upon all these people who have labored with me, who have encouraged me, who have been a great comfort to me. I am dependent upon them, and all of us are dependent upon one another as members of the body of Christ. No one person is more important than the other. No one person has greater view from the Lord than the other person. We're all the same, but we're all differently used. And Romans chapter 16 is a wonderful view of that. All these individuals who were part of the body, who worked and co-labored with Paul. And I would love at the end of my life to write and spell off all of your names and realize, God, thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for every individual who prayed for me, who encouraged me, who labored with us, who encouraged the body, who taught, who served, who prophesied, whatever it is, who sang. Thank you, God, for all these people. That is what the, the testimony I want to have because it's a healthy church that's functioning, that's dependent upon one another, and it's by God's grace, it's by the power of his Holy Spirit that he accomplishes it. Would you stand with me?